William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. episode we'll meet Sophie Merman, Margaret Seymour, Martha Lane Fox, Penny Smith, Susan Faludi and Leslie Knox amongst many others. Through their stories we'll explore how female entrepreneurs prospered during the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, succeeding in the financial sector and prospering from the boom years of the internet and tech companies and how this was set against the overall picture for women at this time of stasis and compromise. Part 1 They never won the approval of Margaret Thatcher, who preferred to see them hoovering the sitting room rather than holding forth in a boardroom, but many female entrepreneurs prospered during the 1980s and into the 1990s. Sophie Merman, whose mother had been milliner to the Queen, co-founded Sock Shop with her husband Richard Ross in 1983, using a £45,000 bank loan. Merman had begun her career in the typing pool at Marks and Spencer's head office, rising to the post of PA to the company's then chairman, Lord Seif. With his encouragement, she studied the nuts and bolts of store management, then in 1981, at the age of just 24, became managing director of Tyrac, where her husband-to-be was finance director. Merman's shops selling tights, socks and stockings were mostly found in railway and underground stations. The first branch opened in Knightsbridge Station and for a while the company could do no wrong. When it floated on the unlisted securities market in 1987, the offer was more than 50 times oversubscribed, and Merman won Verve Clico Businesswoman of the Year. But unwise expansion into America caused problems which ultimately forced the firm into administration. Undaunted, Merman and Ross subsequently opened the successful children's wear store Trotters. Margaret Seymour found huge success as managing director of the Scottish swimming pool engineering firm Seymour, which she founded in 1980. Frustrated by the low numbers of women in business, she also co-founded the Scottish Women's Enterprise Group. In her experience, women lacked both confidence and the desire to push themselves forward and get up off their butts. It is not enough that women are as good or better at their business than their male counterparts. They must get out to events and meet people, she told the Sunday Herald in 1993. They should get away from their desks and take their enthusiasm out into the networking situation and spend £100 on that lunch. It is money well spent. In 1993, at the age of just 33, Penny Smith became president of Coca-Cola in the UK and Ireland, having successfully overseen the company's merger with Schreps a few years before. Two years later, pregnant with her first child, she left the post to a chorus of cheers and jeers. Coca-Cola boss says motherhood is the real thing, ran the Daily Mail's headline. The paper seemingly relieved that Smith had, as Amanata Fauna puts it, bowed to the inevitable, given way to nature and fulfilled her true destiny. In fact, Smith soon returned to the fray, 
taking on an assortment of well-paid non-executive director NED roles at companies like Vodafone, the Mirror Group and the Body Shop, which gave her the flexibility she had not possessed at Coca-Cola. This approach, known as going plural, dividing time and energy between several companies rather than devoting it to one, appealed particularly to women. Mayor Barnes, former managing director of Woolworths, and Anne Burdus, the former clinical psychologist who became chairman and chief executive of advertising agency McCann, followed similar paths. Perhaps the highest-profile businesswoman of the 1980s and 1990s was Anita Roddick. The daughter of Italian immigrants, Roddick founded the ethical skincare chain The Body Shop in Brighton in 1976 and, with the help of her husband Gordon, turned capitalism with a conscience into a feminist mission. Taking her cue from masters of self-promotion like Virgin's Richard Branson, Roddick put herself at the centre of the brand, campaigning for human rights and the environment. She invested in a wind farm in Wales to show support for renewable energy and against domestic violence and the testing of cosmetics on animals. The company's most memorable gimmick, refillable bottles, Roddick later revealed to have been inspired by necessity as much as concern for the environment. We didn't have enough bottles. Though she also said it was inspired by her mother's wartime habits. The brilliance of the idea was that it translated across cultures, across geographical barriers and social structures. It wasn't a sophisticated plan, it just happened like that. At its peak, as Roddick pointed out, the Body Shop's 2,045 stores served more than 77 million customers in 51 different markets in 25 different languages and across 12 time zones. A formidable achievement. Put her in a room with a male CEO, though, and Roddick was still mansplained to death. In a 1996 Guardian debate between Roddick and Stanley Carms, CEO of the electrical chain Dixon's, about the moral duties of business... Carms cast his own approach as focused, rational, ordered and studied. Roddick's, on the other hand, he considered scattered, frenetic and self-righteous and told her so. Roddick saw immediately what he was trying to achieve by using these gendered words. Now I know where you're coming from. I'm the irrational female imposing my worldview on employees, ignorant of how markets work. The London Stock Exchange had admitted its first female stockbrokers, Anthea Gow-Kroger, Audrey Geddes, Susan Shaw and Muriel Wood in 1973, although they had all been working in the sector for some years before that. Actually, female stockbrokers have worked in London since the 18th century, but had to trade on an unregulated informal market along with others excluded for whatever reason from formal stock exchange membership. These female jobbers based themselves in and around the rotunda of the Bank of England. Their work involved a certain amount of standing around, so inevitably some male historians have raised doubts as to how far they were dealing in stock and how far plying an even older trade, ho-ho. By 1985, partly because of attitudes like this, only 52 out of 4,000 stockbrokers at the London Stock Exchange were women. In a documentary filmed that year, broker Elizabeth Sullivan spoke frankly about the hostile, predatory atmosphere on the trading floor. We used to walk onto the floor and go and ask a jobber a price, and men would sort of congregate behind you as though you were from Mars, and they'd stand there watching you, waiting for you to make a mistake, and they'd jeer and laugh and shout. In the male citadels of corporate finance, something was stirring, but it never roused itself fully awake. In 1986, aged just 32, Leslie Knox became the merchant bank Kleinwort Benson's first ever female group director. Looking back on her career in a 2006 interview, Knox conceded, the city is certainly a very tough environment. 
I've had lots of experiences that these days you could sue for if you chose to write them down. But to succeed, it seems, Knox had to tread carefully. It's fair to say I've never positioned myself as a professional female. Being a woman brings both positives and negatives. As many times as someone has said, I'm not dealing with a fucking woman, someone else remembers you, and when you do a good job is more likely to say so. What does it mean, though, never positioning yourself as a professional female? Does it mean when a man says to you, I'm not dealing with a fucking woman, replying, don't worry, I'll find a man for you to deal with? Or, as I hope most women would nowadays, you fucking are, mate. We're back in Thatcher's delusional gender utopia where good women rise on merit and those who fail do so not because they have been held back by sexism and circumstance, but because they are deficient. Is biological deficiency really a convincing explanation for why it took until 1997, 1997, for a woman, Marjorie Scardino, to become chief executive of a FTSE 100 company, Pearson? Or for why it took female membership of the Institute of Directors nearly 20 years to rise from 2% in 1975 to a measly 6% in September 1994? Sometimes women are their own worst enemies. In August 1994, a 28-year-old aviation insurance broker called Samantha Phillips sued her former employer, Willis Caroon, for unfair dismissal. She claimed that having refused her boss's sexual advances on a work trip to Denmark, he'd tried to touch her breasts on the dance floor. She had been sacked in a steamroller fashion after she complained. Willis Caroon claimed Phillips had been fired for gross misconduct after misleading an underwriter. The tribunal chairman exonerated her boss but conceded that Phillips would not have been catapulted out of the door without the right to appeal had she been a man. She was awarded 75% of damages for unfair dismissal and sexual discrimination, £13,500, plus a further £4,500 for injury to feelings. The astonishing thing about the case, which generated quite a lot of coverage at the time, is the way Phillips was not supported by the women in her office, 13 of whom wrote to The Guardian to praise the company's non-sexist attitude and accuse Phillips of being unable to survive the normal rough-and-tumble cut-and-thrust of office life. Phillips, for her part, described a swaggering atmosphere at the firm. I can't help wondering how many of these 13 women would have described themselves as feminists. Even clever, high-achieving women seemed to flinch at the word in the way that historian Sheila Robotham had in the mid-1960s. It felt fusty, joyless, antique. When, in 1981, Sue Brown became the first woman to compete in the Oxford v Cambridge boat race, she coxed the winning Oxford 8, she told the Glasgow Herald she had been happy to accept a bouquet from the crew because she was not a feminist. After giving up rowing in 1986, Brown went into the city. By the mid-1990s, she was working in the research department of a multinational securities dealer in Tokyo, the kind of environment where not being a feminist was presumably an advantage, and still is. As recently as 2010, two former employees at the Japanese bank Nomura, Maureen Murphy and Anna Francis, exposed a culture where it was considered acceptable for a man to say to a female colleague, oh, you don't have your honkers breasts out today, I see. And, apropos a discussion about hiring a cleaner, that's where women belong, at home, cleaning floors. The pair lost their £3 million claim for unfair dismissal after a tribunal panel ruled that the remarks were trivial, not intended to be offensive. The comment made by a trader that women should be at home cleaning floors does not in isolation amount to an act of sex discrimination. Which is a bit like saying that a single-struck match does not in isolation start a fire. What about women further down the ladder? 
As Sue Innes points out, the dominant female image of the post-feminist 1980s, the pursuited, sleekly sexy high flyer, never came near most women's lives. Their wages had largely stuck, having risen from roughly half those of men in 1970 to 60% by 1980. Why were other women not making progress? Overt gender discrimination was, of course, illegal. But covert discrimination was just as invidious. Ditto women's sense of themselves as unworthy of success. Ginny Neville's 1990 report, Women in the Workforce, concluded, Lack of confidence, self-blame and the feeling that female self-interest is in some way wrong seem to act as a ball and chain on women climbing towards higher levels of work or entering male bastions. Some companies, said Neville, were even sending women on assertiveness training courses to release them from some of the learned behaviour of their upbringing. The 1990s saw the appointments of some high-profile women to prestigious jobs. In one year alone, 1992, former Labour MP Betty Boothroyd became Speaker of the House of Commons, Barbara Mills, Director of Public Prosecutions, and Stella Rimington, Director General of MI5. But the overall picture for women at this time was stasis. A report by the Women's National Commission Advisory Committee, published in 1994, found that while some women were living better lives than previous generations, many were still trapped in poverty, incomes of the poorest households having fallen by 17% since 1984, and were trapped by violence and intimidation in their own homes. Women able to find work, said the report, often have to take jobs that are well below their capabilities in order to combine work and family responsibilities. Perhaps inevitably, it was older women who suffered the most. 69% of women aged 75 and over were living on their own in 1991, compared to 35% of men of the same age. Thanks to disrupted careers and a failure to pay into a pension, often because they had always relied on men for financial security, these women were more likely to be living on restricted incomes. In 1992, in the introduction to the British edition of her best-selling book Backlash, The Undeclared War Against Women, the American journalist Susan Faludi mocked the assumption, then prevalent, that to be a woman at the close of the 20th century was the essence of good fortune. How much freedom women had now? Far too much. As a result of this freedom, they were burning out in the workplace, leaving it too late to have children, struggling to snare the men on whom their happiness depended. For those who subscribed to this view... Feminism had failed, washed most women out to sea, leaving on the shore a spluttering hardcore residue of harpies, spinsters and whisperit lesbians. Of course, as Faludi pointed out, this was nonsense. The freedoms women supposedly enjoyed were in reality barely worthy of the name. And crises like female burnout and the infertility epidemic that so exercised newspapers and magazines had their origins not in the actual conditions of women's lives, but in a closed system that starts and ends in the media, popular culture and advertising. An endless feedback loop that perpetuates and exaggerates its own false images of womanhood. At that stage, before mass media, and in particular social media, had started to proliferate like poisonous mushrooms in a forest, Faludi had no way of knowing how much worse things would get. But one woman, someone we've met several times, had had an inkling nearly a decade before. Towards the end of her life, in a book she published in 1983 called The Religion of the Machine Age, Dora Russell set down her worries about the impact of industrialisation on humankind and the environment. The difference between 1983 and the 1910s and 1920s, when she and writers such as E.M. Forster first latched onto the term the machine to describe the coming age of automation, 
is that the computer has worked its way into the heart of this vast apparatus. Russell worries that we will be unable to keep the machine under control. Rather than emancipating us, the persecuting religion of technology will threaten liberty and make an end of democracy as we then understood it, because it will invariably end up being run by an elite of oligarchs or a dictator at the top holding the key to the clockwork. She continues, I had a vision of the machine invading ever more territory of individual labour, running the full 24 hours, setting times and hours of shifts, impinging on every detail of our personal lives. Most presciently, Russell cautions against our habit of living through externalised aids and gadgets rather than from inherent personal initiatives. Although it feels like a century ago, I first surfed the internet and sent an email in 1996. A year out of university, I was a rookie journalist covering what we used to call new media for the trade magazine Media Week. If there was excitement about the internet, where it might lead, how it might transform our lives, there was also scepticism about the potential reach of what was then clunky, user-unfriendly technology. With dial-up modems the norm, people joked about the worldwide wait while their computers tried to access graphics-heavy websites. E-commerce was in its infancy. Amazon existed, but nobody had worked out yet how to make serious money from the web. Google was two years off. As for Facebook... Well, Mark Zuckerberg was just 12 years old. Part 2 What became the internet had its roots in the US military's desire for a decentralised communication system that could withstand a nuclear conflict. By the late 1980s, it comprised around 800 networks, but was fiendishly difficult to find your way around the preserve more or less of computer scientists and academics. That all changed in 1991 when Tim Berners-Lee, a British software engineer at the Geneva-based particle physics laboratory CERN, invented a filing system for the internet which enabled users to jump between files using hypertext, the World Wide Web, www. Histories of the internet have one thing in common. Women are almost entirely absent from their early chapters. One who sometimes makes the cut is Nicola Pello, one of Berners-Lee's assistants and arguably the first British woman to be involved in the internet at an architectural level. A math student at Leicestershire Polytechnic, now De Montfort University, Pello had secured a one-year internship at CERN's computer division. As she later admitted, when she arrived there in September 1990, she had no knowledge of any computing languages, really, apart from using a bit of Pascal and Fortran as part of my degree course. Concerned that she didn't have enough to do, Berners-Lee asked her to create a line-mode web browser, a simple prototype of what would, many years down the line, become Internet Explorer and Google Chrome. The browser was simple because it had to run on any platform, not just the next computer on which Berners-Lee had created the www. But as James Gillies and Robert Caillot put it in their book How the Web Was Born, it was the vehicle that allowed the web to take its first tentative step onto the world stage. In 1992, after finishing her degree, Pello returned to CERN and worked on what was intended to be the first web browser for the Apple Macintosh, Samba. In the event, Samba was beaten to the market by the more sophisticated Mac browser, Mosaic. But Mosaic wouldn't have existed without Pello's earlier coding efforts. This was a vibrant, romantic time, full of utopian possibility. That the internet would, by transforming the way we communicated, usher in an era of unsurpassed peace and stability was regarded as a given. 
Why should technology not be harmonising as well as revolutionary? No reason at all, despite Dora Russell's fears. But where there is revolution, there is ferment, followed in this case by a gold rush. So it was that in the late 1990s and early 2000s, a mass of young entrepreneurs, many in their 20s or younger, rushed to establish internet startups, then issue stock. The fact that many of these companies were totally unproven, how could they be otherwise, and run by people with little relevant experience, seemed not to bother investors, who succumbed to the madness of crowds and kept pouring the money in. A speculative bubble ensued, fuelled by excitable journalists. The most talked-about British internet company was LastMinute.com, briefly valued at nearly £800 million when it floated on the LSE in March 2000. In many respects, it was a British version of the American Priceline.com, a means for people to pick up cheap flights, rooms and other services like theatre tickets and restaurant tables, which suppliers were struggling to offload. Priceline stock was valued at nearly $10 billion when the company was initially floated on Nasdaq, Two years later, after the dot-com crash, it was trading at $7 a share. The difference between Britain and America, as John Cassidy points out in his history of the dot-com boom, dot-con, was that here the start-up phenomenon was largely restricted to a small group of young, highly educated professionals who lived and worked in London, or so it appeared from afar. Within this grouping, the educated professional who attracted the most publicity indeed became the poster girl for the whole dot-com boom in the UK, was Martha Lane Fox, co-founder of LastMinute.com with Brent Hoberman, her former colleague at the media strategy consultancy Spectrum. Lane Fox's job there, her first after leaving Oxford where she'd read ancient and modern history, focused on the growing impact of the internet on media and telecoms, putting her in an ideal position to exploit this collision. Lane Fox credits Hoberman with the idea for LastMinute.com, but the pair worked together on hiring staff, building the technology and generally selling the concept to potential investors, funding themselves by hiring out rooms in their flats. I'm sure Lane Fox would be the first to admit she was lucky to be in a position to own property so early in her career. Although they managed to secure investment relatively easily, Lane Fox was surprised by how few women she came across in the process of finding it. Talking to Danielle Newnham for her book Female Innovators at Work, Lane Fox admitted to having encountered sexism, but also in that classic female double bind to having benefited from male interest. You know, being a woman attracted attention, not the sort of attention I wanted. It was incredibly sexist on one level, but it meant that if I went to the opening of an envelope, it was in the papers. Unbelievable. Lane Fox has also been outspoken about sexism within the venture capital community, arguing that female entrepreneurs are often given short shrift. I mean, why are so many bloody gadgets funded by venture capitalists? Because they want to fly them round their garden. And why are there so few actual real innovations around some of the things women would like? At its height, LastMinute.com had a workforce of 2,000 and outposts across Europe. Lane Fox served as Group Managing Director until 2004, the year before it was acquired by Sabre Holdings for £577 million. Her first move subsequently was to found the chain of karaoke bars Lucky Voice, a fun passion project. More recently, she has joined the board of Twitter and founded the independent think tank Dot Everyone to try to resolve the ethical challenges that bedevil tech companies. Other female tech entrepreneurs also did well out of the boom years and, like Lane Fox, used their fortunes to try to do good. 
When Dame Stephanie Steve Shirley's software consultancy, FI Group, was floated in 1996, it was worth £121 million. FI Group had its roots in freelance programmers, the revolutionary software company Shirley founded in 1959 to create job opportunities for women with dependents. Immediately, 70 employees became millionaires. Shirley sold a controlling interest in 1991 and made £150 million from the sale and flotation. But the company continued to grow and prosper, an attractive proposition because it was solidly profitable as well as innovative. By 2000, it was worth nearly four times the offer price and Shirley was able to anticipate a future in which her wealth would increase exponentially every year without her having to do anything. This troubled her as much as it pleased her. Having spent half my life working 70 or 80 hour weeks trying to keep alive a young company that was paying me only a minimal salary, I found this prospect odd and faintly obscene. Wealth as a reward for hard work I could understand. Wealth simply as a reward for wealth seemed wrong. The philanthropy to which Shirley subsequently devoted her life had a personal as well as an ethical motivation. Her son Giles, who died in 1988, was severely autistic and required specialist care. Shirley spent much of her fortune on autism projects, including the specialist residential school Priors Court in Berkshire. In 2001, she donated £10 million towards the founding of the Oxford Internet Institute, a research body devoted to studying the way the internet, especially social media, impacts on society. My life's legacy is not going to be my company, which I thought for many years it would be, she has admitted. When I give, I try to think in terms of investing in society. I give only to things that I know, understand and care about, and that is information technology and autism. Shirley has spoken often of her need to justify the fact that as a kinder transport refugee child, she was saved when so many other Jewish children died in the Holocaust. It makes me driven to ensure that each day was worth saving, so I try not to fritter my life away. Part of the internet's utopian appeal in the early days, before it became the portal for porn, abuse and fake news it can sometimes feel like, was that it might end up having a different social and gender dynamic from offline reality. As we know, that hasn't happened. On the contrary, many of the most popular and influential websites remain male-dominated. A 2008 survey found that fewer than 13% of Wikipedia's contributors worldwide were women. A follow-up survey in 2011 found things were going backwards. Globally, 9% of contributors were women, though that figure rose to a still pathetic 15% in the US. In 2015, Jimmy Wales, founder of the Wikimedia Foundation, which runs Wikipedia, admitted the organisation had failed to meet its goal of increasing women's participation in the site to 25% by 2015. One study by the Illinois Institute of Technology of reviews posted on IMDb found that even when they resemble men's reviews linguistically, women's reviews still enjoy less prestige and smaller audiences. Linguistic analysis by the report's authors suggested that to get round this, female contributors were adjusting their writing styles to sound more male, using fewer pronouns and worrying less about being polite and conciliatory. Faced with this reality, women have sought to carve out space for themselves. The tagline of Mumsnet, the hugely successful parenting support website co-founded by sports journalist Justine Roberts and TV producer Carrie Longton in 2000, is By Parents, For Parents. Its name clearly tells a more gender-specific story, while even a cursory visit shows how angled towards the female parenting experience it is. 
According to a Mumsnet census conducted in the autumn of 2013, men make up only 16% of all users. No great surprise there, although interestingly the behaviour of Mumsnet's female users has struck academics who have studied it as male. One paper found posters on its forums to have a robust posting style, a tolerance of behaviour such as flaming and swearing, and an appreciation of witty entertainment, qualities usually associated with male-dominated internet spaces, i.e. most of the internet as far as I can work out. So successful has Mumsnet been that Roberts and Longton are regular fixtures on female power lists. They were even credited with the power to sway the result of a general election. The 2010 election was nicknamed the Mumsnet election, as it was believed the site's 1.3 million members, many of them floating voters, would play a key role in determining the outcome. This, says Roberts, was when they first noticed misogyny creeping into the conversation around Mumsnet. There was a backlash, which almost said to me, women know your place. This isn't your territory. Who do you think you are? Thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention, is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and ebook from Apple Books, published by William Collins. Join me again in our next episode as we delve further into the pioneering women of the 20th century and meet more bloody brilliant women. <laughs>